You can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. My guest today has done just that in more ways than one. Hugo Tagome has a long track record of real impact within ocean conservation. From being a curious boy in the pond at the back of his garden to shaping policy changes in Parliament, Hugo has dedicated much of his life to a truly worthy cause, saving our oceans. I couldn't quite believe Hugo found an hour in his schedule to chat with me today. As you'll hear in this chat, Hugo's done an overwhelming amount of work in the marine conservation space. I found myself somewhere between intimidated and inspired. His commitment to the cause is relentless. I planned to talk to him about issues with our oceans, and while we did cover that, it became apparent that his current position has brought insights on much more than that, such as the way government and big businesses actually work, the way big policy decisions get made, and how we might go about tackling some big picture issues, such as inequality, leaving people behind in the green transition, and even taxing the rich. He also reminded me how awesome Cornwall is. I started this chat by trying to get my head around how far his work spans. Hugo, thank you so so much for for joining me today really really appreciate it i know you're a very busy man which we're going to come on to why (laughs) um to start with i honestly i find myself scratching my head trying to work out where to begin actually because your record uh, the things you've done i mean i'm I'm going to embarrass you slightly here now i'm just going to read out a few things okay (laughs) so leading surfers against sewage number one founded the plastic free communities movement the million mile beach clean plastic free awards founding member of the global wave conference set up the ocean conservation all party parliamentary group in westminster part of the edinburgh university ocean leaders program various tv appearances on multiple news networks tedx talks contributor to the times express the guardian columnist for oceanographic magazine various speeches in some pretty high profile events hosted the 22 surf industry members association waterman's ball and of course where we are today with oceana now that's quite incredible straight off the bat so first of all props (laughs) and i guess the the thing that stands out to me of course is the running theme which is oceans right that that's your big thing so what i'm keen to know is why why the oceans what is it about the oceans that speak to you personally just walk us through that personal journey well look, that's a first of all that's a really kind introduction thank you um i've had this sort of good good opportunity and sort of good fortune to work with brilliant people along the last sort of 20 or so years in ocean conservation and and conservation more generally so so it's been a, a team effort often at times i've been supported by amazing campaigners grassroots activists um leading thinkers and i've been able to um position ourselves on platforms that have have helped me create those things and helped me you know do things that can bring people together because all of those things that you mentioned are really about working with other people empowering other people making things happen together teamwork and going for a long time on big issues 
with many people aligned on the same mission because you can't do any of these things alone. It's it would be if I was trying to do all of those things alone, I'd be probably be not in a fit state now. But the ocean, <laughs> you're right, is what what galvanizes my sort of drive. And I'm sat here in my new office and I specifically chose it because it overlooks the sea. I can be in the sea from where I'm sat to the lineup in probably a minute and a half, maybe two minutes. Um, and it's specific for that, because it's the ocean that, that drives me and sort of motivates me and really getting into it for two reasons. One, because I, I love sport and surfing is one of the sports I love and the endorphins it releases, um, the experience, the sort of freedom and flow of doing sport. And that can be surfing, it can be running, it can be swimming. For all people, it's different things. So I've got my things, other people will have theirs. But I think there's a commonality with it, which is about getting into a, a, a flow state and sort of liberating your mind from the day-to-day -day stresses of, of engaging with often the outside world, if not just engaging your body with working sort of harder outdoors or in a bigger indoor space. And so those things are really important to me. And then couple that with nature. And I probably started my journey of loving water and the outdoors with nature rather than surfing or the ocean. And I was, as a kid, as you may have heard in some of my talks, you know, always knee deep in, in my pond at the end of the garden, probably terrorizing frogs and newts and all of that stuff, <laughs> as many kids do. But I was endlessly exploring. It's like any rock I had to lift up, any rock pool I had to delve into, any piece of water I had to put my head under, any opportunity to catch and collect and look at things was what I did. And so, so really what I do today and what I've done for the last 25 years or so is a combination of my real personal sort of passions of sport and activity, the outdoors and nature, and particularly the ocean and that sort of that that salty part of our country which is we're an island nation and we're, we're well known for our connections with the sea and then on top of that which connects it all is i'm a people person and maybe it comes from my upbringing my sort of gregarious parents socializing having dinner parties bringing creative people to, to our house authors tv presenters people like that that i got the chance to chat to as a small boy as a teenager and I was encouraged to always be sort of open and inquisitive and ask questions and listen and also give my point of view and opinion. And so maybe all of that together forms the, the foundations to what I do today. And the ocean now holds this really special place in my heart. And I often talk to my team because I think it's important for any leaders to show by action what you sort of want to see from other people and give them license to it. So I want them to see that I'm going to run in and have a quick surf and have a swim often i'm just in front of newquay harbour and at a high tide in the sort of warmer months i'll often swim out around the island across to the wall and back around the island do like a 1500 meters in the morning before school i see spider crabs and schools of sand eels and sea bass and mullet and all sorts occasionally i'll often surf in the winter here too there's a nice little wave on one part of the beach so i can run down and do that and i think it's really important for me all ocean conservation and a lot of the best ocean conservationists i know those people will be at cop 28 at the moment people mm. from across the spectrum they have a really deep bond with the ocean they're divers they're surfers they're swimmers they're explorers they're people who live and breathe or, or really i should say swim and breathe the, the thing they want to protect and that authenticity 
And that direct engagement with that space is, is really powerful. And it's powerful when you talk to policymakers. It's powerful when you tell a story. It's powerful in the media and to the public because it's real. It's, it's real what we do. And we mm. see the things and we respond to them. So I've used that as my driving force for campaigning over the last 25 sort of years, really, and particularly with SAS and with Oceana, both of which I'm you know, really proud to have led or lead now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was recently in Newquay myself actually, but that was that was actually for a stag do. So I think I saw a probably very different side of the place at that time. That's a part of it. That's um, a part of it too. And but it's a it's a rich yeah. community with amazing people around it. And I I'm yeah. really privileged to work here. It's it's in the far flung sort of of course part of of the UK. But what I think is there's a wild west sort of spirit of entrepreneurialism that exists in Cornwall that I don't see in many other places I visit. It's something that's really powerful. There's a sort of a freedom of thinking, of doing, of creating, of making things happen. And I see that across a lot of people who live and work from here. Interesting. You know what? That's something I've picked up on from two two personal friends of mine that, that I know from Cornwall. They have these these mannerisms and this way about them and actually already from the first couple of minutes of speaking with you you have this similar sort of thing and it is this really intangible thing that I'm going to try and put my finger on but certainly the, the sort of connection to nature is one thing and, and making things happen and really getting to, to grips with with problems and, and yeah definitely something I need to try and find a good word for but yeah very very impressive I've, I've tried surfing myself and I'm terrible at it so also kind of jealous on, on hey, look, I front. think that's one of the best kept, <laughs> kept secrets really I mean I think amongst a lot of the people who run as it were Enviro surf NGOs or, or surfing sort of related movement building things not everyone is like there's an expectation you're going to be like the best surfer around and actually that's not the thing you're somebody who, who often loves it as much as the next person but we're all on this learning journey and we have our good days and bad days with, with surfing just as much as we do with work or other situations in your life. And, and surfing is just a, a good teacher because it keeps you grounded too because it's not always easy. It's not always good. It's actually really hard. It's a good sort of metaphor for life. You've got to take the opportunities when they come, when the waves are good. You've got to accept when they're bad and it doesn't quite work out. You've got to keep getting up and going again. And, and really embracing that. And you've got to take some, as it were, some knockbacks with it all the time. Absolutely. So it teaches you well. You're going to have days that you feel, look, dare I say, sort of humiliated from your experience where you don't get mm. it right. And other days where you get it really right. And so it's a good sort of, it's a good grounder. I mean, some people take, some people often take that in a different direction. It can lead to more ego. But ultimately, I think most people I know who really enjoy it are people who who have a relationship of acceptance with it it's like it can be good it can be bad just keep going keep getting up and absolutely going. yeah it's a concept we think about a lot in mindfulness we talk about you can't stop the waves but you can you can learn to surf yeah yeah <laughs> that's what it's all about right exactly. riding the waves I want to I want to come back a little bit to your TED talk that you gave actually it's not mm. so much the, the content of it it was the way you opened it that really interested me despite all, all this work you started it by you introduced yourself and the first thing you said was i'm a father okay now may not sound like much but it that does speak volumes to me and i guess what i'm trying to get at is how important is your role as a father in all of this are you thinking in terms of i want to make a better world mm. for my family for my kids does that kind of creep into the equation for you I'd struggle to think of any parent who, who wouldn't think like that and, and look at the world through the prism of their own child's future. I think particularly at this juncture of the environmental sort of 
sort of crises, the twin climate and biodiversity crisis, things that weren't really talked about or considered when I was a boy a long time ago, things that weren't sort of pressing pressing concerns. There weren't issues that were creating anxiety in the public. Other things were the threat of nuclear Armageddon, the ozone layer, potentially some other things, but it wasn't the same world we live in today. And when we're, we're speaking today on the first day of COP28 out in the, in Dubai, and at the moment, the projection is, is that we're on course for three degrees of warming if we carry on at this pace. And that is sort of, I think, largely unimaginable in terms of what it will do to the, the planet we live on. It's not that it would necessarily lead to the end of, you know, our civilization or what we're doing, but it's going to dramatically change the face of the planet and human society, where we can live, how we can live, what we can eat, what we can do, pressures on services, pressures on on so many things. And to think of our children and my son Darwin, who's now 15, he was seven when I did that talk to well, think of to think of, aged a bit <laughs> <laughs> to think of the pressures that he may be facing later is is definitely a big driving force for me and I think and you have to be as a, a campaigner you have to believe that you can create the change that you want to see because if not it'd be really hard to campaign around it and I genuinely think that we've got to re-look at the, the the stage we're in about how do we create that future we want for our children and and embrace the fact that we're quite lucky in, in some ways, as well as all of these these terrible potential threats. We're also at a time that the whole of society is retooling. We're going to see a massive shift away from fossil fuels, of how we travel, of how we eat, of what we do, of how we communicate. We'll probably see things that we know and love today that will no longer be possible in 10 or 20 years, but other things will come and replace them. Just as when I was a kid, there was no cheap air travel smoked salmon was a Christmas treat that you only had at Christmas because it was too much of a luxury otherwise. Now it's an everyday thing. But those things may have come and they may also go and we'll mm. live a different and just as good life. And we mustn't think that by losing some of the things we have today, we'll have a worse life. We may have a much better life and it's about the quality of life and maybe, maybe more about time with each other, exploring more locally, eating more sustainably and seasonally and regionally and all of those things. And I think we've got to look forward with hope rather than dread and doom, which quite often permeates all of the media narratives now. It's like, we're all going to die and it's going to be terrible. It's like, well, look, we're not yet and we've still got time. So why don't we start acting a bit faster to create the world we want to see? Love that. Love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm all on board, certainly with the potential benefits of what a better future world might look like and that. I think bringing things closer to home is kind of nice and some of the, the community aspects and things. That's something that's come up a lot on this show, actually, and definitely seem like we're we're moving that way, which is which is really nice. And I also really like, actually, that you've got the mindset of, I think often there's this this uh, idea that it's the future generations that will be dealing with, with the problems or, or trying to solve them. It's like, well, hang on, like we're still very much here. Like They might inherit our problems. They could also inherit some of our solutions if we're prepared to be active and not just pass the buck down to our kids. You know, So I yeah, I think it, being responsible like that is, is absolutely paramount. Let's focus on specifically the oceans. I recently spoke to Tom from Honest Ocean. He spoke a lot mm -hmm. about plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of various issues we could we could look at within the oceans. And as I understand it, at the moment, a big part of this conversation is 
fishing quotas and that's not something i know too much about i'm hoping you might be able to kind of shed some light on that issue for us it's so complicated isn't it the 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 sort of fishing thing and the ocean thing you know for many years i think people saw the ocean as an inexhaustible resource both in terms of what we could take from it and also put into it they thought that nothing would ever destroy or compromise the ocean there was not enough capability in human society to have a tangible or significant impact on the ocean but sure enough we're there and and just as one of my sort of heroes Jacques Cousteau says air and water the two essential fluids on which all life depends have become global garbage cans but they've also become global sort of larders we ate our way through we ate our way through the land and now there isn't really anything i mean some people you know hunt and eat what they hunt and certainly in other countries not the uk as some but you know largely now anything we eat that's terrestrial is raised and reared there's a small number of species uh, colossal numbers that that we consume you know what how far behind are we on that in the ocean space so industrial fishing whether people agree with my framing of it or not is the last significant huge wild harvest on earth huge mechanical mechanized boats go out into all parts of the sea pretty much now to to scoop up marine life and it's one of the biggest if not the biggest direct destroyer of marine biodiversity that's its aim whether that's directly by humans or through crazy things like catching seafood to then feed to salmon in cages to then put on supermarket shelves or to feed in some cases to pigs or to put into power stations or to do crazy things that we were doing by catching marine biomass. And so for me, it's not an anti-fishing thing, that quota thing. It's the, it's the wrong, in the wrong hands. I work, live and work above the harbour here in, in Yuki. I've got lots of friends in the fishing industry. I'm by no means anti-fishing. I mean, you could be anti-any industry. We could be anti-computers. We can be anti-cars. We can be anti-roads. We can be anti-clothes. We can be anti-any single thing because they all cause some level of harm. Even waking up as an environmental NGO, we're going to have some harm. We drive to work. We... Hmm. We use stuff, we move around, we talk to each other, but we justify that harm. So there's a case for shutting everything down, and there's some industries that are, are more in the firing line for that. But the key is is where that quota goes. A very small number of very big companies own most of the quota. So they hoover that up, and they operate invariably the biggest boats that cause the most harm in the most sensitive parts of the sea. And then those small guys and and women who who fish around the coastline, those people who have smaller boats, maybe under 10 meters, you know, who really know the coastline, they know the stretches of Cornwall or the Northeast or Scotland so well, they live and breathe in the community, they're, they're the leaders of, of communities quite often, they get a very small percentage of the quota, just a fraction of the quota. And so they don't have enough, they don't necessarily get enough benefits from it and breaks around it. And so I think the balance of power of the quota is sort of the big thing. It's like, how does it really, as I think the Fisheries Act dictates, how does it really get redirected to the smaller, more sustainable, low-impact folk? And how does it get taken away from the cod barons and the mackerel barons and the people who are really taking so much of that life out of the sea? And that's, that's like a bigger, bigger question 
for me, because this is a thing the public are starting to understand. You know, we've seen it with the issue I, of course, am still connected to, but not not actively working on so much, which is water quality. People understand big water companies riding roughshod over the environment, making billions and putting loads of pollution in. People are starting to, although not responding as quickly as we need, to understand that in the oil space, these oil companies making billions every quarter or week or whatever, you know, they make so much money and polluting our environment and not moving fast enough to, to end new offshore oil or new onshore oil and, and move into renewables. And it's the same ostensibly in many other sectors where we've got big monopolies that hoover up the rights to do things and fishing's one of them. And we shouldn't be conflating big fishing with with smaller fishing. Those those big companies have a disproportionate sort of impact, influence, reach, and of course imp- inflict more damage on the ocean than the small guys. So for me, this is a, a thing about the fairness in society. And we're getting more and more into that space. Like what is a fair, equitable society? How do we support the local people, indigenous people, people in coastlines and on coastlines around the world that are really the custodians of their their stretch of beach, their stretch of coastline, their bit of ocean. And I think we've got to think more and more about that because because without them and without their buy-in, we're never going to win anything. Do you think there's such thing as sustainable fishing? Like, do you think there's a level we can fish at that's kind of okay and can sustain marine life? I mean, or do you think we're better off just not fishing <laughs> although that's a bit of a, yeah. a black and white analysis of it i think there is effectively i mean it is let's be honest like this is a renewable resource it grows back if we didn't think it would grow back we in any part of the um, natural world we wouldn't use anything that is as it were living and breathing so we wouldn't be able to eat any animals we wouldn't be able to use any timber we wouldn't be able to do anything so of course there is a level at which nature can replenish and sustain itself it's like but are we at that level? And that's why Oceana calls for the government to set quotas in line with the best scientific advice, which they're still failing to do. And uh, and that would be my view on it. I'm not a fisheries scientist, but I'm a campaigner and I get the numbers from scientists throughout any campaign we run on. I think that's a critical thing. Where are we following the science on climate change, on fishing, on plastic, on the forests we have around the world, on biodiversity, on anything. Where are we truly following the science? And often we're not. We're we're asked to provide more science to justify why they shouldn't do things. Mm. And that's often used as a tactic to delay any action. So they go, actually, we don't have enough science yet to stop this type of fishing, or we don't have enough science yet to do X, Y, Z. And I say, well, that's, that's sort of interesting because I think... All of the metrics show that we've got enough science to say what we're doing is having a really damaging effect on the environment in in so many ways. So that that really interests me. So I mean, I, you're going to know about this far better than most. You've had hands-on experience with policymakers and, and politicians mm-hmm. and people making these decisions. What is it about that that system that you have that they have any incentive or motivation to delay you? Like, is it just that that taking action is is difficult or risky or expensive Mm. or like what's the why the lack of movement from them when you present them this this data it's interesting isn't it Uh, and one can only make assumptions if one is not involved in each and every conversation that goes on but i'll give you a a view and some examples on why that may be 
Let's look at the plastic pollution crisis and what's happened in Nairobi over the last couple of weeks with the Global Plastics Treaty and countries trying to sort of sabotage action on that, which often mm. happens. Countries or corporate interests may not want to see a change in the status quo in how we do things. It's sort of weird, isn't it? I mean, people don't like change generally, even if it's good for them. And that's sort mm. of odd. People are always resistant to change. People were resistant to change with things like smoking in pubs. They were like, oh, pubs will die. We'll never have pubs. And I remember it's all going to, it's going to be the death knell of everything. But now it seems like an aberration that you'd go to a pub and have people smoking all around you. Mm. And even as you walk past the doorway with those people hunched over their, their cigarette, but as they smoke outside, it feels sort of weird. Yeah. And so, so people don't like change and will always be resistant to it, but then often will come back and embrace it. And that happened with, with the plastic bag charge, which I campaigned for a long time alongside other organizations. Everyone was going, this is going to be terrible it will never work and people won't like it it's anti-choice and all these things but sure enough sure enough now it's like one of the things that they all refer back to as a great success you know those businesses and let me give you a second example of like what you know things taking a long time i campaigned for about probably almost 10 years on the on the deposit return scheme on plastic bottles, which isn't a tax on anyone. It's a deposit you put down on a bottle. You get that deposit back when you take it back to the shop and it enters back into the system, whether it's recycled or sometimes just reused, which can happen in a two-way system. And in many countries, in Norway and other countries, this works really well and it's just totally normal. It's habitual. The system is there. People use it. It helps stop pollution. It helps protect the environment of course it helps stop carbon emissions it creates green jobs it gives people an incentive to to think about their sort of footprint and their actions and we campaigned for a long time i took a quarter of a million signatures to downing street i sat with special advisors in downing street i took a huge ship built out of plastic bottles with volunteers up to london to campaign on it we took to beaches around the country to do audits on plastic pollution and bottle pollution. We presented evidence alongside our allies in the NGO space at the London Assembly, at the Environmental Audit Committee, in Parliament. I took that campaign to, I think, the UN Ocean Conference, all sorts of places. And we sort of won it. We got a commitment on it. But sure enough, that's not been implemented yet. Industry has diluted it. There's been all sorts of complications which have been potentially engineered by business to say there's no way we can now sort of do it easily. So it's all slowed down and it's like, well, look, this is a low-hanging fruit. There's, it's a win on every front. People want it. It works. It works in other countries. The evidence shows it, it's easy and good and people like it, but yet you're still not doing it. And if we're not doing it on the low-hanging fruits, what about those ones that are up the tree? What about the fruits at the top of the tree? How do we get to those? And the thing that's frustrating about that, the thing that this sort of inaction and the endless delays of consultation paralysis where government will go, we need one consultation, we need another, and they're always complicated. And then they've done two or three, and then at the end they do one for business. It sort of just says, do you want us to go ahead with this, yes or no? And you're like, oh my God, like, how does that work? And the frustrating thing is that we saw that governments can act really fast if they want to. When we saw it in the pandemic, overnight there were there were laws that stopped us from seeing our friends and going outside. There were new things that controlled us individually that we signed up to and said, sure, in the face of emergency, we've got to do this thing. There's no problem. 
well, we'll all sign up to it. They they changed how we could do things. They changed how they could support people not working with the furlough scheme. They closed down international airports. They they did so many things so quickly, and it disproved the fact that they say, oh, we can't we can't act quickly on that. It would just be too complicated. All oh, people wouldn't like it. We wouldn't like it if we stopped them eating salmon every day of the week. It would it would be a vote loser. Oh, we couldn't possibly have a carbon tax because people would be so upset. It's like, well. Really? Really? If yeah. we really are in the face of danger? And can you not move quickly? Because you did it before. So it seems, seems you've got all of the mechanisms at your fingertips just to move quickly. And you mobilized billions, hundreds of billions of pounds during the pandemic in the face of emergency, much more than you've ever done in, in the face of the environmental emergency. So you really, you really doing what you need to do? I think it's the, it, the, the emergency element is lacking, isn't it? In, in the uh, environmental space, at least as far as government's concerned, it's the, I think, think the certainly at a point now i think yeah yeah it, it's a problem we need to do something about that but the mm. word emergency and the need to act now that does yeah. feel like what's missing well yeah the pandemic they addressed that as the emergency it was you can weigh up how right among they got things but yes you're right they acted and put things in place and if they really did see climate as an emergency then then yeah i think you're right we would start to see some more of more actual action take place right i think it's a different type of emergency, what we went mm. through the pandemic. When people feel they could imminently die anywhere, it creates a different sense of urgency. And my, my feeling is, or my prediction sort of is, is because in part, there's a very incremental response to the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis. And actually, I think we're going to hit some cliff edges, which means that we need to move faster we may we may be approaching those cliff edges bigger disasters happening at greater frequency in in the sort of developed countries and developed cities and locations that the mean governments really sort of think about the next bit of dramatic action more quickly but that's my sort of sense on it it's it's going to take even more and we're not far from it but i think it's going to be cliff edges towards action rather than oh we're Let's all start getting heat pumped slowly. I think it will mm. be like, yeah, you, you have to. It's not like a, there's no choice sort of thing. And how do yeah. we make sure we don't leave the poorest behind? How do we make sure that the richest really are? Because ultimately this, not to go into this too much, but this is really about inequality, isn't it? This is about some people getting richer and richer, a lot of people getting poorer and poorer. The disparity in that, the economic system and our economy driving unnecessary consumption that isn't making people happier i mean indeed i think people are probably unhappier a lot of the time now too much pressure too much social media too much absorption of their time so they just don't have enough time with their friends or family or outdoors all for the sake of new tat that's displayed at tills during christmas that they can put in their friends stockings or their 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 under the christmas tree for their kid that they don't really need that makes them have to work harder and that thing, and like, we can't unpack that one quickly. That thing is not taking us to a fulfilled lifestyle. It's as sort of alluring as a, a shiny bit of silver paper to a magpie on the floor. And, and that's what we're all playing into the, 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 the subconscious drivers that we have to collect and hoard and have and consume because that's pre-programmed in, in human beings. Yeah. You know what? These, these things, they keep coming up on the show, the, the, the inequality. I mean, the element of how do we not leave people behind this this really does keep coming up as a theme like, yes we want to make these transitions and, and move 
forward and take these big leaps but you're always at that risk of of leaving people behind I yeah mean, do, do you know do you have any ideas or insights into how we might do that you know? and yeah. how do we leave kind of the how do we not leave the poorer classes i'm you know, assuming would be generally speaking the worst off in this this scenario how do you do it truthfully i think tax rich people more tax me more like and tell me and show me where that money is going back into the things that we need the good things to invest in and the things that we should always be be investing in our transport systems our public transport systems our schools our hospitals our healthcare those common universal things for everyone that underpin a good society that both the rich and the poor should want as the backdrop of what they're doing we don't want to live in a ghettoized society where rich people live in gated communities fearful of the people outside People outside can only come in to clean houses and and clean out pools and do whatever. You know, we need to we need to have a new a new way and a much more equitable way. And I'd say tax people more. I mean, there's there is only one way. We've got to tax big corporations and richer people more. But we've also got to show them that that's going into a a, a well structured society and the money is hypothecated properly to build those things and doesn't somehow leak out back to test and trace schemes that don't work and PPE that was never effective and is then burnt in piles in, in secret locations around the country. So this is really about sort of a new way of thinking. And in a way, taxation is the wrong word. It's like an investment from everyone. We're in all investing in right side. So the word itself feels like a punitive word. And in some ways it is, but it should be seen as like a a good thing. It's like, yeah, my, my son's school's better. Like there's more teachers. The teachers aren't so like tired and stressed they have more time they've more got more time to teach darwin or they got more time to teach i don't know if you've got children yeah that's why i was so keen to, to ask to, you to, to the teach head, your yeah. kids or to like i just think like well why wouldn't you want that like to feel truly proud of the society and the way we're supporting mothers disadvantaged people young people giving people opportunities why wouldn't why would we feel bad about our money paying for that stuff i mean there's nothing to feel angry about I honestly don't think I can remember anyone calling taxes investments. And that's exactly what they are, or what they can be if, if yeah. spent right. Like, I mean, don't you stick too much in specifics and, and money, but do you, do you think that would be a popular policy or, or a movement that could, that could realistically happen? You think rich people, people with wealth, would say, you know what, yeah, I'd be, I'd be up for paying more tax if I knew where it was going. Do you think that's a, a realistic change that, that you can see happening? I mean, truthfully, it's already happening. I think there's a movement of wealthier people who are already calling to be taxed more. I think we saw mm-hmm. just in the last week or two them projecting their their call to be taxed more on one of the sides of, I don't know, maybe it was the, the stock exchange or somewhere. I think it, it is hap- happening, this, this consciousness of, I mean, how much do you actually need, you know? Tr- truthfully, and yeah. it's, all, it's all relative. I mean, I'm sure there's people who would look to me and say, certainly from other countries, and go, wow, you've got too too much. And I yeah. look up and think people have got too much, but I'm perfectly willing to reconcile the fact that I've got flex to give more and we live in a society that needs more. So I think that conversation is starting to happen and inequality, and we live in one of the most unequal societies in, I think, the whole of the developed world. 
And so it's something that we have to tackle because, of, of course, like it could be like the French Revolution in the coming years, if not, as people see inequality having such a dramatic impact on their everyday lives. They're angry about it. You can see they're angry about money through some of the, the environmental issues we've talked about. They're angry with water companies for hoovering up over 60 billion since privatization and not investing in the system. They're angry with these big oil companies that are that are making so much money, charging us more for energy, but also destroying the environment. And they're starting to be angry with other sections of the business and, and sort of economics of the community. So I think it's there. And I think there's a willingness from, from many sort of richer people to say, well, yeah, we, we should pay a, a bigger slice. And, and no one chooses to live in a, in a tent on, on the street as a lifestyle choice. No one really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> chooses to be on the, on the dole and to survive on whatever a ha few tenors a week as a lifestyle choice. These are they're hard positions to be in. And often mm -hmm. they come from an accumulated series of not having opportunities and bad luck for people. And to try and frame those people as sponges or lazy sections of society is just wrong. These are people who are facing adversity and haven't had the opportunities and often truthfully let's be honest the good fortune that many people get born into they get born into a an escalator of opportunity with schooling education the people they're surrounded by the wealth that they're surrounded by the contacts that they have and it's not because they're necessarily more talented than someone else it's just that they've been framed and housed within the system that can enable their own ability to sort of shine and not everyone gets that and so mm. we live in a we live in a place that we need to just be increasingly you know cognizant of that and just to sort of finish that this is to do with also our voting sort of system in my opinion it's like we live in this age and very rightfully so of equality diversity and inclusion and the challenge of society to make sure that the right voices are heard and that people are platformed and we live in a much more tolerant space and that everyone is respected right but we don't have it. We're not, we haven't got that representation in our political field because it's a two, effectively a two-party two system, first past the post. And how is that representative? Mm. How is that equality, mm. diversity, and representation? How does that do what we're now all expected to do and rightfully expected to do as business leaders or people in any part of the community? It's like the political system is inherently like biased and unfair. And we need a better mix of, we need a, a, a parliament that has a combination of views in government, a, a, a coalition, a, a proportionate representation that really shows this changing world that we live in. And I think that that is something that will have to come at some stage, because if not, we just flick from one side to the other and it's just not working. Yeah, you know what? This is a, this is a, a rabbit hole. I didn't I didn't plan to go down, but I'm kind of glad we did because it's such a big part of the conversation. I'm, I'm totally with you. This idea of a this, this almost two party state that we live in is is mind blowing to me. Like you know, it's Labour or Conservative. That's it. That's your only choice. So they're the only ones that matter. Refuse to buy into that. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, yeah, you're at the, this this class. I don't want to call it a war. The the, the difference in classes and that growing in, in inequality is is frightening and i think you see it on a local level don't you in terms of trying to make greener decisions and maybe i sort of put my money to things that will allow me to be greener and you've got the poorer classes think well, that's all well and good for you i'm still just trying to put food on the table and then you see it at a national level as well right you mm. see rich countries like like us do, trying to 
do do our bit and, and be greener and, and we are, we're now measuring our our uh, footprint and trying to reduce yeah. it poorer countries you know, well that's well and good for you we can't do that <laughs> like yeah. it's yeah. and it, yeah it is quite uh, quite alarming isn't it yeah look and i mean just to, to to bring it right back down to what we can do as as individuals and and where we need change i'll give you an example i did a talk at cambridge university at the beginning of the week to business leaders and ranging across the issues that i work on and really talking about citizen activism and policy change i got challenged at the end by a one of the business people they were like oh isn't it about education like like why are sort of kids littering and stuff and i'm like well look you can't you can't educate them on the systems that don't exist if we haven't given them a deposit return scheme we can't educate them to put their bottle into that system and to learn how to use it if, if we don't have the frameworks around them to use then then we can't educate them nor can we expect them to come along and clean up our mess so as business leaders and governments clamor to get young influence around them the big fear i have is that they're trying to basically devolve the responsibility to the next generation going they're, they're going to come along and clean it up and that's not what anyone's asking for now we're asking for action now to remodel and retool society so it gives us the best chance to continue as far as we can with a prosperous lifestyle and that doesn't mean retaining everything that we've ever had because if that was the modus operandi of society we'd still have whaling we'd still be lighting whale candles on the street to light our way home we'd still have lead in our petrol we still have asbestos in our roofs we'd still be drinking and driving we'd still be smoking in pubs we still have a culture of racism and inequality at a much higher level in any country and so of course there's change and there's things that we had that we will not have anymore and that has to come again we cannot keep all stakeholders happy in the transformation that we need we have to accept there are things that are happening that will no longer be able to happen that's just the change that any society goes through absolutely yeah i'm gonna bring myself slightly back to what i was planning to ask you because yeah. I'd, I'd kick myself Please if go, i didn't go, get through this. but that was it. i'm so happy we, we took <laughs> that that tangent there We've definitely, you know, we've spoken a lot about about the issues, and of course, spoken about the the depth of your work, which, mm -hmm. as I as I mentioned, is is far reaching. I'd really, really like. You've already touched on some already, but I'd really like if you're able to just just give us some examples of some success stories you've had mm -hmm. where you, you've done something you think, and you said, you know what, we did a good thing there. We made progress. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's a a really good a really good question, and I, I, sometimes challenge myself on it because don't know where the line in the sand of, of real achievement is because as we've mm. seen with maybe brexit like good laws can get undone and then and put you back to square one but if i was to sort of unpack it there's a few things first of all if i take it on the very sort of community level of empowerment and how you create change i'm very proud that i've been able to run organizations that empower and involve so many people Surface Against Sewage, Oceana, we're growing by the day on, on the amount of people we influence. I work with an amazing range of colleagues around the world, then we've got a big sort of footprint of activists. And I think to give people the opportunity to take action and show them they've got voice and that it matters what they say and that they count and that no one is too small and we're all the same, we're all the same size and that it involves us coming together has been one of my sort of proudest things because that didn't exist in the same way at SAS before I evolved it to where it is today so i'm very proud of that and i'm very proud of how i'm doing it at, at oceana too and the team that we're we're putting in place and that we've got moving so that thing is important to me and that we've cut through on some of the big issues 
on plastic pollution and on on uh, water quality. It was work that we did over the past 15 years with SAS that has led to that breakthrough in data. So that real-time data, those maps you see in the Daily Mail and in the Express and on the BBC of red dots on around the coastline that came because of because of surface against sewage effectively and the work we did we pioneered health data that looked at the background health of the population and we didn't stop on that because like at the time i took over people said oh there's no like issue what are you talking about it's like no there is an issue we know it we were researching and getting the data so so that thing and the fact that we've taken that debate right back up into the public eye is really important and i, th I think is a really big victory um just in challenging industry and giving people voice. And it will lead to change. And it depends on where you draw the line. There were times I could have gone, well, we'll just accept the billions that they said, the 56 billion or whatever, and we'll move forward with what they're recommending. But we never did. We just kept sort of pushing. And that will continue right through to the general election because it's become a big election issue. On plastic pollution, I was proud of things like the plastic bag charge, deposit returns, even though it's not happened yet, it's like one of the things that will ultimately happen. And it was because of SAS and Greenpeace, particularly, that we pushed some of those things forward. And really, ultimately, now, I'm really excited about the transition from oil and gas into renewables and some of the big conversations we're having. We've just launched the Ocean Alliance against offshore drilling, We've got a lot of very sort of good political conversations going on around the commitments as we approach a general election to what that could look like and the investments that will come and how that will happen. And we're building a brilliant coalition with the Blue Marine Foundation and Greenpeace and the Well and Dolphin Conservation Society and Oceanographic Magazine and many others, which will mean that will be a big force. Not of what we're against. It's not just about what we're against. It's about what we want. It's about we mm. want to protect our beaches. We need to stop big oil from destroying marine life, whales, dolphins, porpoises, fish populations. We need to protect the places people surf and swim from the potential of a catastrophic oil blowout. And we need to make sure that the UK is at the forefront of setting the house of cards to fall down of big oil. It's like, if we say it, then other countries will commit to no new oil and gas. And we've got to see that sort of whole domino effect you know, happening. So I'm really proud that we're part of that. And that's one of the reasons I made the move to actually be be part of that debate and lead a new team and new collaboration on that because I love the water quality debate. I love the plastic pollution debate, but there was always more and I never wanted to get typecast. I'm an ocean campaigner. I couldn't, couldn't do sewage for my whole career and I knew mm -hmm. there was something next. So for me, those things are really important and never stopping. And as a campaigner, you just never stop. You've just got to keep going. And like, even when you win, you've got to make sure that you keep talking about the the win and how you protect the win and water quality is a great example of that and i think tacitly some of the the community around water quality campaigning historically accidentally set the scene for government and industry to take their foot off the pedal of protecting that they create the conditions to go we've done it all look at us we're there opening water treatment plants celebrating what's happened and actually that create the conditions to go well it's all happened now from government oh we don't really need to regulate oh look everything happened. people are happy and actually, we were the ones and my team were the ones who said, no, actually, it didn't all happen. There was a lot of opaque behavior. There was a lot of damage that happened during that time. Debt mountains that were built, combined sewer overflows, hidden upstream, all of those things that led to that, that victory being sort of questionable and easily underminable. And so I think it's really important as a, as a 
sort of experience campaign say like if you've got to win you've got to fight hard to retain it too because they can all be undone i honestly am amazed you've you've found time to sit down for the last 20 years and, and yeah, this just is incredible and you know there's some really really amazing stories and examples of exactly what this show is all about creating a positive impact you've done that in spades and by the sounds of it far from done there's a lot more to come which is yeah. really really inspiring and it's, it does bring me on actually to, to one of my final questions for you, just just while I've got yep. you, is I think it's fair to say not not everyone can necessarily do exactly what you've been doing in terms of the the, the, the scale. Not everyone can mm. start these culture shifting charities and organisations, but we can all do our bit. So what I want to ask you is what would you say to our audience or everyday kind of people who want to do their bit, they want to be a positive part of these problems? What practical advice and tips might you mm -hmm. give to those people? Look, A, as I said earlier in the, in the conversation, I think it's important to, for people to recognize their voice does count and their opinion counts. And mm -hmm. that they, if they've got a passion and a skill, whatever that may be, they might be a good campaigner, they might be a good designer, they might be legally brilliant, they might just be a good people person, they might just have a lot of energy, whatever it is, like you can bring something to the debates that you're interested in. That may be environmental, it could be a social issue, it could be any issue. And and believe that you can get there. B, from my vantage point, it's, it's easy for me to, and it's easy for people from the outside to assume that there's like a linear, it's all easy, and you get there. And like people will hear about some of the big things you said, they might see photos of me with people, people who are influential or whatever. And they think, oh, look, it's like, it's sort of amazing. And, and there's a route. There are loads of difficult moments when you question yourself and you challenge yourself along that way. And moments you don't feel relevant and that are hard and you feel other people wanting to bring you down. There's lots of moments that you feel the competition of others that it's difficult, where you don't have money, where you don't have influence. And you've got to keep trying to stick things together and make it work and find new routes and where there's a dead end come out of that road and go again, find a different route. And where people say no, find the people that say yes, um, you know, really believe and have that courage of your sort of convictions to, to keep moving forward. Um, and that can be at every level. Don't assume that doing good is, you know, has to be going to the UN or meeting world leaders. That can be, that can be in your house. It can be in your house with your family. You can decide to be the person who does good in your house. <laughs> And is influential for the culture you want in your house and how people come together and support and treat each other in your house. And it could be in your community. It could be in your school. It could be anywhere in your business. And so there's always a place you can influence change. And so just believe in that and keep, keep going and try and meet the right people. It is worth trying to meet the right people. You know, if you can, and not everyone can do this, it's worth trying to get into rooms and inform yourself yeah. and you meet one person and then you meet another and then suddenly you realize and then you get to my stage and you look back and go, oh, sort of added up to something yeah it's all those atomic gains isn't it it doesn't yeah. just just come out of nothing starts with the dinner table activism and uh, you just keep going I, I love that it's really really powerful insight final thing i'm going to ask you this is the, the closing tradition for the show i like to mm -hmm. get the the change makers change maker so what i'd love to do is ask you to to nominate someone who who you think is doing some really really great work in the world to make a positive impact could be a person an individual it could be a business could be an organization could be someone related to your field or otherwise just someone that you think is really worth pointing out and saying they're doing a very good job it's really it's a really interesting question because there are so many people that are doing doing very 
good things and trying to run businesses in in new ways. I, I, I've got to say that uh, business often maligned all creates an impact, but there are businesses trying to do really good things. So I'm going to have to nominate and select my good friend, but also sort of an inspirational person, Tom Kay, who runs Finisterre, who has brought a, a really good sustainable brand together that's trying to do the least harm it can do brilliant products from ulex in wetsuits through to recycled fabrics but also is trying to do a lot of different things with the impact it can create a lot on equality diversity and inclusion with how people can get in the water and use it for their health and well-being the different less less sort of affluent groups and people who don't normally have the access which normally in sort of water terms is privileged people like sort of like me and then help environmental groups and lead and support things like the Global Wave Conference and the movement against plastic. And they support a lot of different things. So Tom is, is doing great things and helping a lot of people and very accessible and humble in how he does that. So yeah, big props to him and Finisterre. Amazing. Thank you so much, Hugh. That has been absolutely brilliant. You, I know you're an incredibly, incredibly busy man. Very, very inspirational, actually, that was for me. And the fact that you've taken an hour out of your your incredibly busy work important work to chat with me has been absolutely amazing it's been really good to chat to you thank you so much what a gent for someone who's achieved so much i'm struck by how humble he remains and he repeatedly made it clear that it's not just him it's the people he surrounds himself with his teams his network because no one can tackle this stuff alone He also reminded me of something that I do like to think about from time to time, which is that a quote-unquote better world is not a goal or a destination. It's something we continuously need to work towards. It's a measure, but it's not a target. And that is ultimately a good thing. That can be used as a motivator to get up and do a good thing each day because it is truly an endless endeavour. Thank you so much for joining me again today. That one was really quite special for me. It was really great to build further on from the chat I had with Tom Jackson from Honest Ocean in episode nine. If this is an episode you think someone will enjoy, send it to them. Share the URL. Don't worry about sticking it on your socials, although it is obviously absolutely fine if you want to do that. Just hand it to someone individually and let them know that you thought about them. That's what I like to do with podcasts. And I think it goes much further in connecting us and growing content in the right way by which I mean to the right people. Links to Hugo, Oceana and his other projects, as well as Hugo's shout out to Tom Kay and Finisterre, they're on the show notes, as well as all the ways you can get in touch, be it on email, which is cpi at soundquake.co.uk, or for you Spotify listeners, you can use the Q&A function right in the app. Look after yourself this winter, and if you fancy a challenge, Go surfing. Hugo swears by it.